The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host today alongside James Fox. James, how you doing, sir? Good, man. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Thanks for asking. Really appreciate it. Today we have a guest, Steve Paradzinski, better known as NWI Steve on Twitter, Southside Clown Show, joining us here on the Future Sox Podcast. What's up, Steve? Good to hear from you. Hey, yo, fellas. How we doing today? Well, we're doing okay. Uh, Steve, you write for ONTAP Sportsnet. Happy to uh, conversate about the Chicago White Sox upcoming. We had Buzz on tap in one of our previous podcasts. You guys do a lot of really good work over at the ONTAP Sportsnet. So credit to you. Really appreciate you taking the time and speaking to us. We have a lot that we want to get into. Baseball's proposal, trying to get back underway. Uh, your opinion on minor league baseball related to the Chicago White Sox and all this and that. But first, let's kick things off with an update with how you're doing. I know you took some time off of social media. We all need to step away from time to time because, you know, the toxic environment and everything like that. But how are you doing personally across this uh, COVID-19 pandemic? You know, I mean, the the COVID aspect of it, I mean, I've been totally fine from that standpoint. I think, um, you know, I've taken probably a little more precaution than maybe other people have just because of the fact that I have so many people that are close to me that are immunocompromised. Um, You know, my girlfriend is immunocompromised. My dad just got done finishing up cancer treatment in March. Both my girlfriend's parents are immunocompromised. So I got a lot of people that are really close to me that this could impact uh, pretty significantly. So, um, even in the very kind of early stages of this, I was wearing a face mask. I went and just got a lot of, um, you know, rubber gloves and everything. So anytime I have to go out to go grocery shopping or anything, I'm putting gloves on. So I'm just trying to be really conscious of that and, and just trying to be um, pretty precautious of, of what I'm doing out there. So tell me about this whole Twitter thing. You just kind of like dipped on us and people were asking about you. Yeah, it, you know, just kind of was uh, dealing with some some other personal stuff, you know, um, with, with work and a couple of other things and just kind of wasn't really in the mood for Twitter for maybe a month or so. And uh, so just kind of took a step back for a little bit and it was refreshing in, in a number of ways, just not dealing with the toxicity of, of the website and, and what it's become lately. But, you know, I think in a lot of ways it kind of became – almost like part of my daily routine where I would get up and I would eat breakfast in the morning and I would kind of scroll through my feed, kind of see what I missed. And I think especially with, you know, the delay in the season and everything that's happened here, I felt really out of the loop in a lot of ways because of the fact that I wasn't getting those real-time updates. Um, You know, you go, you know, I have my subscription to The Athletic and, and to ESPN and all the other sites and everything. But, you know, Twitter's really, I think, the biggest medium in which information is communicated nowadays. And like I said, it's really happening in a real-time fashion. So I really felt out of the loop for, for that month there. But uh, I got back on about uh, two, three weeks ago here. So back in the swing of things, back up uh, writing some pieces for ONTAP Sports here and just, uh, you know, back to being my usual sarcastic self, you know, quote tweeting Seinfeld and uh, throwing in some uh, old-school wrestling gifts and just, you know, being being the heel that I am, although I'm not quite Ken WO heel level, but uh, you know I, I got a little bit of that in me. Yeah, so I think you know one of the recent pieces that you wrote was just about you know if baseball gets back going here, and it looks like you know we can get into the the agreement later. But I guess 
you know, if there is an agreement and there is baseball and it's this 78 to 82 game, uh, you know, where you're playing the division and then you're playing the opposite division, how does that benefit the White Sox? You know, I think one of the aspects that really helps them, and we talk about this a lot. I know, James, you and I have talked about this pretty extensively, but um, people throughout the game talk about the fact that the baseball season is a grind. That 162 games is really meant to kind of sort out who the best team is in a division or in the American or National League, for example. But if you're just shortening that to a 78 or 82 game sprint, I mean, teams can be hot and and can make the postseason. I mean, you go back and you look at 2012. The Sox were in first place for 119 days and they didn't make the playoffs. You know, so you look at a 78 game stretch here. If you can find a way, you go 48 and 30. Now, I don't think the Sox would go 48 and 30, but you, you, you pull that off right there, you're going to the postseason and, and you're going to end that championship drought. So, you know, having that truncated season right there really helps to kind of make up for the lack of depth that a team like the Sox um, has right now. Whereas, you know, teams like the Dodgers are just built for that 162 game grind because they've realistically probably got about 35 legitimate major leaguers on their 40 man roster. So, they can weather the storm of that 162 games there, whereas a team like the Sox, they don't have the depth to be able to handle that right now. Well, you know, we don't have a schedule yet, obviously. So, like, you know, to your point, like, you could get a bunch early against Kansas City and Detroit and maybe even Pittsburgh, you know, and then maybe the young White Sox team thinks they're a little bit better than they actually are. Like, you know, some of that stuff goes a long way. And you're going to have um, Carlos Rodon back, likely. You'll have Michael Kopech for most of the year. It'll be interesting to see how they deploy some of these guys. But just what are, what are your thoughts on, like, as far as the pitching staff, how it'll look different? I think they'll probably have some sort of, like, three-week ramp up. But, I mean, are you expecting, like, you know, maybe, like, some sort of tandem starts or some starters going four innings, and then you bring another starter in? Like, you'd be playing MLB The Show or something? Um, how do you think that goes? Yeah, that's something that I, I've long thought was going to be a strategy that they were going to utilize here. Like you mentioned, with Rodon and Kopech coming back off of, off of injuries, Dane Dunning as well, um, and you know, looking to manage workloads for guys like Dylan Cease, who's going to be in his first full or was supposed to be in his first full season in the league here. And you know, another guy, a veteran, Gio Gonzalez, who is not known for going particularly deep in games. So I think this really gives them an opportunity to utilize things like those tandem starts there to keep guys fresh and ultimately could take some of the burden off of a young and relatively untested bullpen that does have some question marks. There's some significantly high upside with some of those guys, but they haven't necessarily proven it at the major league level. And I think utilizing some of the tandem starts and some things like that could help to mitigate some of the risk in that area. I think so. We're having this conversation under the assumption that, of course, that the season will get underway in some sort of abbreviated capacity. And as a fan, selfishly, of course, I want to see the games being played this year. And, you know, we can even talk about the long term effects that, you know, would occur should the season not get underway and, you know, how it affects players, contracts and organizations as a whole moving forward how it even affects the draft this year. I mean, there's so many topics, so many layers to this. However, let's back it up and, you know, talk about the now. As we sit near the end of May, an agreement hasn't come to the table yet between players and owners related to mainly safety and also mainly financial. So my question to you, Nancy, the more I think about this, of course, obviously safety has to be the number one concern. And I understand players don't want to take the risk, but I'm thinking of all of the employers involved here with all of the organizations across baseball who are being effective and they're losing their jobs. Some franchises are, are taking care of them in, in uh, you know, unique capacities here in, in the way that, you know, they can supply them financially for now. Um, but who knows what's going to happen moving forward without a season, it affects more than just the players and owners, Steve. So my question to you is, I guess, what is your take now when you're seeing these conversations between the, the players association and the owners trying to figure out a way to get on the field this year? You know, as I sit here and look at this, um, you know, if you, if you saw any of the financial headlines this morning, we had another 2 million people file for unemployment last week. So we're, we're upwards of about 40 million people have applied for unemployment benefits in about the last eight weeks here. I just think it would be a tremendously bad look for Major League Baseball, the industry as a whole, if 
the game is not played this year. And if ultimately the deciding factor is the financial piece of it here. Um, you know, I'm going to probably ruffle some feathers with this. You know, I don't take a side when it comes to professional sports labor relations. And despite what anyone tries to argue with me, this is not a typical Main Street labor relations discussion. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, the owners and the players here, they're all wild or the a good percentage of them are wildly rich and have more money than any of us will ever be able to amass in our lives. So I just, I, I don't sympathize with the plight of other side, to be completely honest with you. So I just think that it would just be such a bad look for the industry if the game doesn't resume at some point here this year. There's just too much money involved for all sides here to just pass this thing up and, and to say, okay, we're not going to play this year. And I think from a long-term ramification, look, baseball is on the wrong side of the demographics cliff. You know, I think we, according to recent studies, like the average age of people that identify baseball as their favorite sport is in their late 50s. And it makes sense because, you know, you, you watch a baseball game, whether it's a Sox or, or a national broadcast, especially, just about every other commercial is for an erectile dysfunction ad. And that kind of tells you all you need to know about the demographics facing the sport. So if you lose another season here, I just think it's going to really be catastrophic for the game, for the from a marketing standpoint, from the image of the sport. So they've got to find some way, assuming they get the safety protocols ironed out to where everyone is comfortable, because I think there are legitimate concerns with that. So if you get all of that squared away, you have to find a way to make the finances work for everybody involved. There's enough money involved in this for everybody to to walk away with this and feel okay and play this year. That's just the way I look at it. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm hearing you, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And in relation to the demographic side, yeah, I think the late 50s, 59, I think I saw, and that's the oldest among all the major sports. So, yeah, I mean, that's concerning. Baseball already had a ton of issues going into the 2020 season. Uh, prior to the to the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, you had the Astros scandal. I mean, the Red Sox thing was still looming. You also had uh, the issues with all the rule changes that they were trying to implement. They're trying to cut down on, on time of, of game. Uh, you know, there there are so many different things that baseball and, you know, Rob Manfred was under a lot of heat you know, to begin with. So if it's not going to get underway because of financials, I don't know how the perception will, will change down the line. And how about this, Steve? They're, they're proposing all of these guidelines, trying to limit these players from doing habits that they've grown up to do, you know, their entire lives associated with the game. No spinning, to trying to, you know, remove tobacco and, and seeds. Like, there is so much involved here. Yeah, I mean, it's when, when I've read some of those um, safety protocols that they were trying to implement there, the first thing I, I thought when I saw no spinning or no sunflower seeds is, that will be broken the very minute the first person steps on the field for the very first session of batting practice. And I mean, it is just part of baseball culture is you get on the field, you're, you're spitting left and right. And, you know, guys use tobacco. And I think to expect guys to stop doing that is just not realistic. I mean, look, you know, guaranteed rate field was a year or two ago, put in provisions about no smokeless tobacco being utilized on the field. Anyone taking a look, has uh, Jose Abreu stopped putting gigantic lippers in be because of those provisions? No. I mean, so to think that these guys are all of a sudden going to stop doing this is just, it, there's just no way it's going to happen from my perspective. So the way I look at it is this is probably just a first draft kind of a, a CYA draft so they could say okay well you know we threw this out there just to you know appease you know all the right people who say hey you know this is what we're really thinking about but in the end a lot of these provisions are going to have to be pared down yeah i think even i saw today the mlbpa came back with what like five or six other things that they wanted or what because they want to be able to have therapy still after games and stuff for people that might be immunocompromised so you know even like the uh the financial aspect of this the health and safety protocols seem like they're going to be a negotiation too so um moving on so you know something we've asked people that have come on obviously there's probably not going to be a minor league season 
Um, but one of the things I was curious about is, you know, you, you go to a lot of baseball games. We're finally, you know, thought we were going to have a team here that might contend a little bit. How, how is that going to change your consumption of minor league baseball, you think? Um, it would change it drastically. You know, I'm always a guy that focuses more on the big league product. Now, obviously, over the last three years, as the Sox have undergone this rebuilding process, a greater emphasis has been needed on the minor league level. I mean, in 2018, I took a trip down to Birmingham, Alabama, roll damn tide, to go see the, the Barons play. You know, is there any other circumstance I can envision myself going to Birmingham, Alabama? No, but I was able to go down there, got to see uh, Dylan Cease pitch down there, got to see Bernardo Flores, saw Collins. Um, earlier that April, I drove down to Indy and saw Kopech pitch. So, you know, I definitely was consuming the minor league product. And I mean, I have, you know, a, a laptop and a tablet that I would every night while I have, you know, the Sox game on my main TV, on one of those devices, I would have one of the minor league affiliates on there, depending on who, typically depending on who was pitching in, in those instances there, or um, trying to monitor guys, you know, key at bats, you know, looking at Aloy or Lou Bob over the last couple of years here. Um, so, you know, this year that was definitely going to be pared down significantly. Um, just knowing the fact that there's really only a couple of guys in the upper minors that are, you know, what I deem significant enough to dedicate that kind of time to. So, you know, obviously I would tune in to watch Andrew Vaughn, um, you know, watch his at-bats, watch Jonathan Stever when he pitches. But, you know, if you look down in Charlotte, I mean, they had they have Madrigal down there and then there's not much else there. Um, and the rest of the guys really of note within the system are kind of lower level guys. And, you know, you, you couldn't even necessarily watch Kannapolis frequently. So that kind of limited your access to some of the players down at that level there. So, um, but to, I mean, really to answer your question, like I said, um, the overall consumption of the minor league product was going to be drastically reduced here this year, especially with the changes and, and with the additions that they made at the big league level, looking to transition towards repeating. Or, or towards contending, excuse me. Outside of, you know, the Magical, the, the Vaughn, and the Robert, any of these minor league players that may have stuck out to you that you're, you know, that, that have caught your interest, I should say, you know, maybe a Jake Berger. Because we talked Jake Berger a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of positive development surrounding his game. Zach Birdie as well, considering that he's healthy as somebody that can fly through the system quickly as long as the, the fatigue holds up. You know, there, there are several prospects that maybe aren't getting as much notoriety these days who can make an impact this year, especially considering if they're going to implement this taxi squad with 50 players, you know, that are available to your roster. I mean, these guys could, could seriously make an impact in 2020. Yeah, I would say for for me, you know, and I, I agree with all the names that you mentioned, but one guy that I've always kind of followed pretty closely um, is Bernardo Flores. Um, just having been a fellow soft tossing lefty, you know, he he always kind of resonated with me. And when I saw him down in Birmingham last year, he kind of reminded me of Jose Quintana Light. And I even uh, said that to Rick Hahn when he did one of those uh, NBC Sportsnet um um, podcast tapings at uh, Reggie's in the South Loop. I, you know, kind of had a sidebar conversation with him for about five minutes, and I told him that, and he kind of looked at me like I was an idiot. Which, you know, uh, you know, that's a discussion for another day here. But you know, Flores is a guy that just anytime I watch him, you know, on on the minor league app and just seeing him in person, he's a guy that has, you know, what they they talk about pitchability a lot in scouting circles, and he's a guy that I, I just think has that that. He knows he doesn't have overpowering stuff. He's never been the ultra gifted guy that had really loud tools that stood out to other people like a Kopech or, or a Dylan Cease. But he just goes out there, he hits his spots, and he just finds ways to get the job done. So he was he was someone that I'm, I'm really interested to see if he's utilized with this taxi squad format that they're talking about. I'm glad you brought up Flores because he's – Always, he's been interesting to me as well. I saw him pitch one time, and I know I can't draw any conclusions from the, the one time, but when you see a guy in person, even just once, you get such a better feel of what he brings to the table. And for me, when I saw Flores, among the left-handers who I saw pitch that day, Flores definitely stood out to me. And what you're saying is absolutely correct. 
I saw a pinpoint fastball, something that, you know, it's not going to blow blow anyone away, but boy, was he able to hit his spots, a clean delivery, and he's got a nice breaking ball that he's able to mix speeds with. Uh, I want to continue. James brought up the idea, too, there's going to be potentially a ramp up two to three weeks. Is that enough for these guys to be ready for the sprint, as you called it, of an 80-game season potentially? Man, that's that's a really good question and one that I'm not sure that I can fully answer. You know, I know that's kind of taken the uh, the cheap way out of this, but you know, we were we were towards the, you know the very back end of spring training when everything halted, and you know, you would think that guys obviously have in some capacity been working out um, since the shutdown began here. So three weeks might it might be enough. Um, for position players, especially with pitchers, you know, and trying to build up um, pitch counts and, and trying to build up, you know, the durability, particularly for starters to withstand the rigors of being a starting pitcher throughout the course of the season. It's, it's really hard, I think, to say with that. But again, I think so many teams um, kind of circling back to something we talked about earlier are going to utilize tandem starts and, and utilize different and unique ways of going about managing those 27 outs over the course of a game now. And I think in in some ways, this season is almost kind of kind of be like a, a football season where every game is really just magnified. Um, more so than any other season that we've ever seen before. And, you know, I think with Ricky Renteria in particular, we're really going to find out a lot about him as a manager this season. And is he really the guy that is going to be able to lead this team as they bust open their contention window? Or is he going to be the White Sox Doug Collins? Who else did you see in Birmingham? You said you, you went down uh, and saw Bernardo Flores, but who else kind of stuck out to you when you when you made that trip? So when I went down there, I caught that that was during the run when Cease was was down there. He had gotten called up, I want to say maybe two or three weeks before I got there. Um, and then he went on that big run kind of in the second half. I saw his one really bad I would maybe really bad is probably too strong of, of an expression there, but I saw his one mediocre start down there. Um, so saw him um, Ian Hamilton. Saw Ian Hamilton blow a save down there. We said Collins was down there. I think Danny Mendick was still there at the time. And I believe Basabe was as well. Um, you know, it was it was a little bit of a thinner group at that point because um, Aloy had gotten called up, I want to say, about a week before I got down there um, up to Charlotte. So, you know, the, he, he wasn't there so the roster was a little bit depleted from that standpoint, but um, yeah, I think those were the guys that really stood out from, from that standpoint. And Hamilton, I thought his stuff looked good that day. He just missed his spot on, on a couple of things and ended up blowing a lead in the ninth. Yeah, Ian Hamilton is such an interesting case because, uh, what was it, 2018 when he came up and made his debut with the White Sox, right? Yeah. Tail yeah. end of that season, and I mean, he was pumping out of the bullpen. Clearly, he's got the stuff. Um, and then he suffered an unfortunate injury last year that cost him a season, just a, a freak accident. And then he also got into a car accident, right? Right, James? Am I am I mistaken when I say that? So he got into a car accident in spring training. Yeah. Messed up his shoulder. He was like all set to make the team, I think, last year. So then he was delayed. And then once he started pitching at Charlotte, he got hit in the face with a line drive in the dugout and missed the rest of the season. Yeah, so there's the freak accident for you. But it's just like since then, since the 2018 year, he wasn't able to establish any sort of consistency. So here at Future Sox, we were really looking forward to following his 2020 because essentially, you know, a full season or even like a a full preparation in the offseason as well in spring training, this guy could make his debut again relatively quickly at the big league level. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Ian Hamilton. You mentioned Luis Basabe, and he's another guy that I'm a big fan of, uh, and he's riddled with injury, hasn't been a guy with any sort of consistency established. Right. What did you, what, what did, what, what's your take on Basabe? Switch hitting outfielder, a guy with speed. Uh, what, what do you think he brings to the table? You know, he's a guy that you look at him, I mean, that's your prototypical fourth outfielder right there. Um, you know, a guy that they say can handle all three outfield positions, um, you know, has, you know, the, the versatility at the plate. And I mean, you know, you go back and you, you 
look at when he was in the Futures game just a couple of years back, you know, him taking Hunter Green and 102-mile-an-hour fastball, taking him deep at uh, at Nationals Park there. I mean, the guy's got some some pretty good tools, and I just don't know at this point if he's going to be able to stay healthy enough to be a consistent contributor. You know, that's one of the biggest concerns that I have with him. Um, and, you know, along the same lines are a guy like Michael Rodolfo. You know, we talk all the time about the loud tools that this guy has, but he just cannot stay on the field. And there just comes a point where you have to actually go to the post to be counted on. And that's, I think, my biggest concern with Basave right now is just his inability to piece together a full, complete season. Steve, I think the White Sox might have uh, like accidentally established like the newest market inefficiency here with the universal DH since, you know, I think we, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast since we found out about this. I think they're going to have like seven of them. So I think Rick Hahn might be able to supply like half the National League with guys. Maybe Maybe that's the reason why they've added so many of these guys. That could very well be the case, although, you know... James, I know you're just as upset as I am to see the sacrifice bunt die and the ultra complex double switch. Um, it, I know it, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss strategery. Yeah, it, it really it's, it's gonna it's gonna pain me, you know. I mean, and, and to think that now National League pitchers aren't gonna get the benefit of having at least two guaranteed outs in a game. I mean, how are they gonna cope with this here? But uh, no, but in, in in all seriousness. The roster composition that the Sox have at, at the 40-man level, I mean, they've got several guys that, you know, fit that DH mold. I mean, you look at a guy like Gavin Sheets now, you know, you got Abreu at first base, you got Encarnacion for this year and potentially next year, and you got Andrew Vaughn. I think Gavin Sheets is a guy that's really the odd man out now in this scenario, and the way that he came on the second half of last year and really started to show some of the power that he displayed when he was at Wake Forest, um, I think is a very good sign for the Sox and their ability to maybe utilize him as a trade piece to some of these National League teams now. Um, you know, you look at a guy like him or even, you know, cult favorite, your mean Mercedes, although I, I realize that's, you know, blasphemy to suggest that maybe the Sox would move him and try to, you know, strike while his perceived values maybe higher than it really is but they definitely got a couple of guys that that would fit that mold that could have some utility to a national league team here in their search to you know have a functional non-automatic out in their lineup steve i take i think you've seen the yermin mercedes instagram photos right do you think um when he takes the field looking as he does now he'll still be as popular or no no i i liken it to jonah hill though when he lost Nobody, nobody likes skinny Jonah Hill. Yeah, yeah I need my Jonah Hill fat. <laughs> yeah, Yerman, <laughs> uh, scares the hell out of me. I'll be honest with you guys. I saw him uh, up close and personal hit a bomb, and the intensity that he's able to bring. I mean, like the way he was celebrating with his teammates. I mean, I'm sure he's like bringing all that positive energy. But man, you, good luck, good luck uh, telling that guy he can't sit at a table or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's he's a real big boy, and I I know I caught some heat, you know, early in spring training when he was hitting all those bombs left and right, and I was kind of one of the people like, what purpose does he serve on on the twenty six man roster for for the twenty twenty White Sox? And um, the thing that I just kind of kept coming back to is he's what twenty seven now. He's never stepped foot in a major league batter's box. To me, as a non trained scout. That seems a little problematic that if if the hit tool and the power was really that great, that he would have stepped in a major league batter's box at this point. But that's just my perspective on your man. Yeah, I think one of the names we've kicked around is like the ultimate ceiling for him was Evan Gaddis, possibly. And I think Evan Gaddis is probably even a better catcher than Mercedes is. The one thing that you said there that I agree with you on, I, you know, I kind of push back a little bit against Yermin Mercedes' 26th man, but... I mean, if you're allowed to keep 50 dudes and move them around like, you know, might happen this year, I'm totally fine with Yermin Mercedes like hanging around. I mean, it's not like there's a minor league affiliate for him to play at. So like this scenario for him, I think, is actually pretty good. Like, You could make the argument that, you know, like Encarnacion goes down for a week. It might be Yermin Mercedes instead of you rushing like Andrew Vaughn to the big leagues or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in that scenario, that definitely makes sense. Um you know, but uh, kind of getting back to one of our earlier points here about, you know, 
the DH in the, in the National League. I mean, I think he's a guy that I would assume some teams probably would, would make a call on to try to fill that spot from a roster perspective. But I would, yeah, like, like you said, I would have no problem now in this current environment, him sticking around and, you know, if you get in a, in a late game scenario and you need someone to hit a blast, if it's, you know, bring Danny Mendick up or have your mean just swing as hard as he can and try to run into one. Yeah. Let, let, let the big boy go up there. What do you, what do you think about this cop? Is he a right-handed Daniel Vogelbach? You know, I think that's, that's not far off. I just, I feel like Vogelbach probably had a better overall hit tool. Um, just at least from, from a scouting standpoint. I mean, Vogelbach was what a first or second rounder though, wasn't yeah, he? He was up there. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, usually if you're, if you're going to take an overweight first baseman that high, I mean, they, they probably have to have either really good power or an above average hit tool um, to go at that position in the, in the draft there. And I just, I don't feel like Yermin ever had those kinds of grades on, on his hitter power tools. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're spending a lot of time yeah. on Yermin Mercedes. Yeah. That's okay. That's, that, that's what happens though when you're, you know, he, he was an afterthought. And then when you post, you know, 150, 160, 170 WRC pluses, like, you know, in high A, and then you do the same thing in double A and then triple A, like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's when you start to get noticed. I mean, this guy was basically, basically a non-prospect and then smart people that have been on our show here have, you know, like have talked about him and have him like in their top 15, which, yeah. you know, I think is a little bit, you know, a little bit nuts, but you know, so these guys, you know, have, have strong track records of guys like looking forward to seeing him. So Steve, one of, you know, it's, it's draft season for us. Um, I, I believe you've said, you know, in the past that you're, you're a little bit more conservative, especially with first round picks. So I guess they're picking at 11. Is there anything that they could do at 11 that would leave you, I guess, like upset or aggravated on June 10th on that first night on Wednesday? Yeah. The only thing that, that would really bother me would be if they took Jared Kelly and, and James, I know you've been a big advocate of, of this, um, High school pitchers in the first round, they just absolutely terrify me. You know, looking at, at the data, and I know um, Keith Law wrote a piece for The Athletic a couple weeks back, kind of looking back at the history of high school pitchers in the first round. Um, the idea of that just absolutely terrifies me. I mean, the Sox haven't done that since, what, Chris Hano in 2000 out of Providence. And, what a name. Yeah. And, I mean, that just was an absolute uh, train wreck right there. That just terrified me. You know, I'm, I'm someone that I would make a terrible scouting director because I'm not really willing to take enough risk to draft a guy like Kelly, you know, especially at 11. But, you know, picking 11th is a really kind of a tricky spot because you're not going to get, you know, one of those uber-level prospects like a Bryce Harper, Stephen Strasburg-type guy at that level. Although, you know, you go back and you look the last time, you know, the Sox got a future Hall of Famer at number 13 a decade ago. So they could strike gold again in, in a similar spot there. It's just from from my perspective, Jared Kelly, just the risk with a high school pitcher, that that would just be very alarming to me. Um, and I say that, and of course, they'll probably draft him, and it'll probably work, and I'll look like an idiot, and I'm totally cool with that. So, all right, let, put your scouting director's shoes on. You're in charge of the amateur draft for the Chicago White Sox. It's a five-round draft this year. How would you approach it if, if you're the organization? You said, you know, you want to stay away from the high school arm and Jared Kelly. But, you know, okay, so how is your approach considering there's only five rounds, right, as opposed to 40 in the past? Do you want to go after a college-ready player in the first round or maybe even a high school position player in the first round? Or would you be willing to commit to several high school players maybe in the latter part of the five-round draft considering where the Sox stand uh, in terms of depth within their organization? What do you prefer they do? I think what I would do, um, I think in the first round at, at that number 11 pick, I think I would look to go high school position player. So, you know, you look at someone like Ed Howard, um, you know, local guy here uh, from Mount Carmel, uh, middle infield player. That's the type of thing that um, that I would look to take advantage of at, at their spot at number 11 right there. Um, and I would 
try to find a way to get him to do an underslot deal and then try to spread some savings or spread some of that uh, surplus um, bonus slot money in those remaining four rounds there to maybe then go and in say maybe the third or fourth round target another high school player that maybe has a college commitment already lined up but if you can throw you know some extra money at them that might tempt them enough to walk away from that collegiate scholarship um i think that's probably the approach that i would take right there um so yeah i think that's that's where i would go so you said ed howard and I'm a big fan of Ed Howard, and I personally hope the White Sox draft Ed Howard as well. Um, I'm, I'm putting together a draft profile on him, and, and that'll get released in a couple weeks here at Future Sox. Very excited about the prospect and, and what he brings to the table. And, Steve, I feel like it, it, you know, the White Sox can afford to go out and grab a kid. Now, you know, there are concerns, for sure, related to Ed Howard and his, and his value. He didn't participate in his senior year of high school and his senior season. Uh, obviously, given the circumstances, as well as, you know, he's got uh, a shoulder injury that is on his record that maybe scouts are uh, are kind of, I would say, put off by maybe, and that'll affect his stock. But in terms of where the organization stands, and I'd love to get your opinion on where they stand as well, I think they can afford to go out and maybe, if you want to call it a risk, grab a high school shortstop in this product because... Me personally, I think he's got everything. Uh, the makeup, the character, the work ethic, the tools, and you know the story's great as well, given that he's a local kid. But I just I buy into what I, Ed Howard brings to the table, and considering that he's a shortstop, you know the value's there. Yeah, no, you, you make some great points there, Mike. Um, I think the way I try to look at it from a, from a drafting perspective, um, I think up the middle high school talent. If you can get that in the, in the first round, that's always something that appeals to me because you're getting them at an early enough age where if they hit that development curve, um, once they get into your system there, I mean, we're seeing it now. Guys are getting to the major leagues younger than they really ever have at any point. So, you know, if you draft an 18-year-old senior that's an up-the-middle player, they could get to the big leagues by the time they're 20. And, and now you're really maximizing the best potential years of their big league tenure, you know, before they really get to free agency and hitting the open market. So that's where, you know, high school players always uh, have kind of appealed to me in that aspect of it there from the, on the positional side. Um, and then aside from that, I mean, I really like, you know, polished college pitchers. Um, you know, we, we look at those and, and those are guys that, again, can typically get to the big leagues a little quicker. And if you look at where the Sox are right now in their overall contention cycle here, um, we're expecting this team to be competitive for the next six to seven years. So, you know, if, for example, a polished college pitcher happened to fall to them at, at number 11, I don't think that that would be a bad strategy either because that would allow them to potentially plug one of those guys in here as they're making a, a playoff run in, say, 2022 or, you know, 2023, maybe at the absolute latest there. So I think there's real value in either one of those uh, particular strategies. Yeah, I think one of those main college pitchers, like, falling to them is the best-case scenario for them, too, whether that be, I mean, Asa Lacey, Texas A&M, Emerson Hancock of Georgia are supposed to go, you know, probably in that top five. But then you have Reed Detmers of Louisville and then Max Meyer of Minnesota, you know, I think it's very possible all four of those guys are off the board. But if any of them is on the board at 11, you know, you just, you know, you uh, theoretically, you just run the card in and do that. Because even if that pick doesn't work, that pick is easy to justify. That isn't taking, uh, you know, a six foot three, 225 pound high school starting pitcher or taking a, a high school outfielder that you could, you know, get criticized for later. So I, I think that would be ideal for them I just don't know that it's going to happen I think they're going to get put in a weird spot where you know all the obvious guys are gone and then you're you know you're you're left with the the fifth best college starter possibly or going you know the direction we've been talking I mean Mike was talking about Ed Howard but they're in a really good spot to take you know one of the top high school position players if that's what they want to do because drafts are always college heavy at the top and this one will be especially with everything that's going on yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned Detmers. I think that's a guy that I 
kind of have a bullseye on there, just given the recent history with the Sox taking players out of Louisville in the last couple of years. You look at Zach Birdie, even uh, Adam Engel before that, Cade McClure. So they've obviously got, um, you know, some pretty good scouting roots down there in that area, looking at that program in particular there. So it wouldn't shock me at all if somehow Detmers fell to them at number 11, if that was the guy. Yeah, I think it. I, I think if Nick Hostetler was in charge, so I'd have Reed Detmers in in red ink probably. Um, but that's that's the other one of the other interesting things is just kind of seeing the direction they go under a new scouting director. I mean, I think you know they they usually kind of get consensus at the top, right? So even though you have a new scouting director, n- nothing's probably going through without the approval of Ken Williams and Rick Hahn. But I guess just like strategically. You know, something I'm curious to see is if it looks any different with somebody else in charge. Wait, James, are you saying that Rick Hahn doesn't make all the decisions? Because I've been told on Twitter that <laughs> that's completely him, that Kenny yeah. hasn't been saying anything anymore. Yeah, tell him that. <laughs> Twitter's a great place. Um, everybody's right, you know, no matter what. Everybody's right. Uh, so, all right, Steve, I'm, I was, uh, I'm really excited about where the Sox stand organizationally. Um, I think – the way that they're they've approached these last couple of drafts, uh, especially last year, I was very excited to see the amount of high school prep talent, of course, that they uh, invested in. In you know the later rounds, of course, you got to mention the second and third round picks and Dahlquist and Thompson, the two pitchers. Um, so you know the Sox are in a great spot, and I think what we just talked about it it kind of reflects that. Considering there's not really many avenues in which they can take in my opinion uh in this year's draft that would i guess aggravate me so if they want to go out and grab you know a catcher if patrick bailey is there for example and he falls to the socks at 11 then he and they decide to get him that's fine you know i'm excited for that i'm excited to see what mike shirley in that department decides to do and steve wrapping up this podcast really appreciate the time this was a lot of fun I want to talk a little bit about, and if James has another question or two, we can keep this rolling for sure. But I want to talk about the article that you posted about Yasmani Grandal that caught my attention and really turned me on to uh, the type of content that you're able to produce. And I've been a follower, of course, of your stuff, but you made me think critically a little bit and a little bit outside the box thinking related to Yasmani Grandal's value, as well as what he may be able to bring to the table as a leadoff man. Could you kind of explain that perspective for us? Yeah. So, you know, I think once this team started making acquisitions here over the winter, you know, you look at Grandal was obviously the first domino in uh, mid to late November. And then, you know, bringing in Encarnacion, getting the extension hammered out with Luis Robert. Big shout out to James on, on, on that scoop there, um, making sure that he was going to be on the roster at the start of the season. You really started to see this lineup take shape. And one of the areas that I looked at was as a question mark for them ultimately was who was going to hit leadoff because they don't have that prototypical leadoff hitter. You know, we saw Larry Garcia in that spot for a lot of last season. And, you know, for my money, and I didn't major in math at uh, Purdue University, but I think a sub 300 on base is just too low for a leadoff man in 2020. Um, and I know a lot of people are on the Tim Anderson hype train um, to put him in the leadoff spot. I just don't think that there's enough consistency there with his offensive approach um, to be in that spot. And so you just look at the rest of the lineup, you know, we saw the Mankata experiment in that, in that spot. And I think he was trying to be overly selected there. And I think it took away from some of his natural tools uh, by limiting his aggressiveness, putting him in there. So, you know, I just came back to the idea of Yasmani Grandal is a guy that, you know, has what a, a 10 to 12 percent walk rate. You know, since he came into the major leagues, he sees a ton of pitches. This team as a whole does not see a lot of pitches. You know, even you add in the likes of Grandal and Encarnacion, they're still going to be probably just in the middle of the pack in terms of overall walk rate as a team. So, in the interest of trying to get some people on base for Moncada, for Abreu, Jimenez, Encarnacion, Robert, those big bumpers in the middle of the lineup, you need somebody setting the table at the top. And that's where I thought Grandal, with his patience and his willingness to work counts and take walks, made just a ton of sense. Now, you know, granted, he's, he's a 31-year-old catcher. He doesn't have a lot of foot speed. 
you know, and a lot of old time cranky baseball fans will say, oh, I need a, a slappy middle infielder who's fast. It's going to steal me a lot of bases in that spot. No, you need somebody that's going to get on base at a minimum 360 clip from my perspective. And his, and his money Grandal checks that critical box from my standpoint. And I just think putting him up there, um, working counts, putting stress on pitchers early in the game is going to be a tremendous asset to the team. And, you know, you look at the way that the Sox as a whole lengthened their lineup um, with a lot of the acquisitions over the winter. Once that lineup turns over, you're going to have Grandal in position to drive in runs there if, you know, Mazzara is able to rebound and put together a, a strong year, you know, with Robert potentially hitting down in the lower third of the order once he initially gets called up. I mean, Robert's a guy that we all know can go first to home, no problem if the ball's hitting the gap. And so that's where a guy like Grandal, who's got that combination of patience and power with 30 home run capability, it just made all the sense in the world to me. And like I said, I know I took a lot of flack for it, but I'm going to stand by that. Yeah. I wonder like, what do you, what do you think they're actually going to do though? I mean, that I, I like, we've had this discussion too. And obviously there's, there hasn't been baseball. Um, we don't know if, if Madrigal is going to be up on the team. I guess I was, I guess I, I would say that they're probably going to do some version of like Anderson and Moncada, even though, you know, I don't really love Anderson up there either. I, I feel like that's the way they were leaning. I, I think you're probably right in that aspect. Um, there, there is also part of me that wouldn't be surprised if they tried putting Luis Robert in that spot initially. Um, and I don't particularly like that uh, just because he's a very aggressive player. He's another guy. He doesn't take a lot of pitches. He doesn't work counts particularly deep. And I just kind of felt like maybe after the first 10 days or so of his big league experience – Pitchers were going to use his aggressiveness against him, and he was going to see a lot of breaking balls, and there was going to be an adjustment period with that. Um, you know, I think down the road, could Robert fit in that slot? Yeah, sure, I, I could see it. Um, you know, I mean, somebody made an interesting comparison on uh, on the Twitter machine about being a poor man's Ricky Henderson, which, my God, if he if he turned out to be a poor man's Ricky Henderson, we're in really good shape here. Um, but initially, I think that's a, a little bit of a scary thought to put him in that slot. But I, I definitely agree. I just feel like that had Tim Anderson written all over it as being the leadoff guy. And like like you said, James, probably with Moncada sprinkled in there in there on occasion too. Um, it doesn't thrill me tremendously, but uh, I, I just think that's probably the most realistic way that they would go. Yeah, as, as much as I was underwhelmed by Tim Anderson leadoff hitter like back in March, I would be ecstatic to see it now. So please, Tim Anderson leadoff hitter, anyone leadoff hitter, just just play baseball. Steve, I, did you watch the last dance? I did. Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting for me, you know, being someone that I'm not a huge ba- basketball fan. I really I stopped watching basketball actively probably around the time I was 14. So in 98 and, you know, I was always kind of a little bit of a contrarian. I actually wasn't a Bulls fan growing up. Um, you know, I told this story on the uh, 108 uh, three things podcast recently that I was the kid that when I was um, like 10, 11, 12 years old, I had a Dennis Rodman Spurs Jersey and um a lot of people did not like that, obviously, <laughs> given Rodman's time with Detroit and, and the bad boys and everything that surrounded that. Um, so I wasn't a huge Bulls fan, but I mean, it, it was really fascinating to watch some of this stuff and just see, you know, a lot of the backs, you know, backstage stuff with, with Michael Jordan and just realizing that this guy, he's not a human being the way the rest of us are. Um, he He's almost like an alien. I mean, he, he just has a skill set and a mindset, I think more importantly, that I think few people on this planet probably have. And I, I, that's really one of the biggest things that kind of set him apart, in my opinion. Yeah, Steve, I think you you being a contrarian shocks me. Actually. That, that's, that's like the thing I took from this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I mean, if, if you play, playing plain hot dogs and Spurs jerseys. Listen, man, what am I going to put ketchup or mustard on a hot dog? Come on. No, not, not when you, to your credit, not when you're trying to eat a million of them. I, I get it. You don't even, you don't even drink beer on those nights, right? No, no. So what I, what I, one of the things and one of the tricks I actually learned uh, about halfway through the season last year is I would actually take a backpack in with like six or seven bottles of water to help <laughs> hydrate. Yeah, that's smart. That's 
So you were you doing the Kobayashi thing then in in your seat, like you're stuffing the stuffing the hot dogs in, and then well, yeah, them, hold on. on you know, yeah. you, I, I got I got that image in my head now, but it's oh, also sorry. like yeah, help me help me out, Mike. Here, do you Steve. know? Do you know? Yeah, Steve's like a big time record holder of eating dollar dollar hot dogs. Yeah, explain that to me. So you know the um the 108 boys, you know they they decided to put together this contest last year for the most hot dogs eaten on Dollar Dog Wednesdays throughout the course of the season. I actually finished. Oh man! I actually finished second, um, with 131 hot dogs eaten. But the thing that was interesting was at the 108 after par- Sox Fest after party last year at uh, Buffalo Wings and Rings, they made a prop bet on which number was going to be higher in 2019. Number of dollar dogs I ate or Jose Abreu RBIs. <laughs> and, you know, Abreu had never, I think his, he had maxed out, I think like 105 RBIs in a year. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to crush that easily. But he got on that hot streak in, in the middle of the year where he was just driving in every runner that was on base when he came to the plate. And I was, I was honestly kind of sweating it out a little bit because I actually had to miss the first two dollar dog games of the year because I had to, I had to work, so I couldn't take off, you know, during the week. Um, the thing that really helped helped me out though was the double header on July third when Cease made his debut, yeah. and on that day, I'm proud to say that I ate uh, I took down 22 hot dogs in the two games. So, oh God, that, that is disgusting. Here, here's the here's the here's the really funny thing about it though was that morning I, I didn't eat anything before getting to the park that day i went to the gym i literally did an hour on on the stairmaster burned like 900 calories so i was running at a caloric deficit by the time i got in the park and it was so hot like i'm just sweating all of this out i actually the next day i weighed myself and i actually lost a couple pounds how about it how about it well so tell me how many uh, hot dogs per Dollar Dog Wednesday, did you eat, would you say? My my max that I had in, in one game was 14. Okay, so on average, what are we talking? My, my average for the year, I, I ended up like 13 point something. Wow. All right. That is commitment. And a love for hot dogs, I guess. I mean, they're, listen, listen they're an American staple, but, you know, like I hope... I can count on one hand the number I've eaten since that final uh, Dollar Dog Wednesday game in uh, late September of last year. I, I just, I don't know. It's it's something that's always kind of been part of the baseball experience for me, and now we've been we've had that taken away from us, and it's uh, it's really very troubling to me. Yeah, part of your baseball experience taking it to the extreme, I guess. But hey, let's uh, let's all hope. Hey, and right, you're just prepping yourself for the next time that you're able to do this, right? You don't want to, you know, wear yourself out. It doesn't, you can't, it, it, you don't want it to get old, right? By eating hot dogs away from the ballpark. So I, I feel you there. Exactly. It's a good strategy. Hey, we'll get there at some point. We believe that you know, fans, whether. I don't know if it's going to be this year, but hopefully it's next year where we're able to enjoy those Dollar Dog Wednesdays, really uh, fun nights at the ballpark, and hopefully the crowds are packed as well. I mean, it's going to be a different atmosphere at Guaranteed Rate Field once the White Sox are uh, are going to be taking the field again. So that, that's something that we can all look forward to. So, Steve, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for jumping on the podcast. Hopefully you stay healthy and well. And, uh, yeah, again, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today. Mike, James. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been an absolute blast. That is Southside Clown Show, currently his title on Twitter, at NWI underscore Steve. You can find his stuff on the ONTAP Sportsnet. Steve Paradzinski joining us on the Future Sox podcast. For James Fox, and my name is Mike Rankin. We're going to sign out here. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out all of our stuff on futuresox.com. Also, Look us up on iTunes as well as on Spotify. We're also on Google Podcasts. Just look up Future Sox Podcast and, well, listen to us on any platform you see fit. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next time.